The energy transition is a long and winding road, and it needs to be taken step by step. Learn more at SiemensEnergy.com. This is Barron's Live. Each weekday, we bring you live conversations from our newsrooms about what's moving the market right now. On this podcast, we take you inside those conversations, the stories, the ideas, and the stocks to watch so you can invest smarter. Now, let's dial in. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Opus Energy Insights on Barron's Live. I'm Denton Sincrograna, Chief Oil Analyst at Opus, a Dow Jones company. And joining to me today, joining me today is my colleague, Jordan Godwin, Director of Renewable Fuels at Opus, also a Dow Jones company. But before Jordan and I start chopping it up and talking about renewables, just want to spend a minute or two on retail gasoline and what's happening there. Uh, we saw a hurricane pass through Florida the other day, and there's four actually named storms churning out there in the Atlantic. No threat to land, but pretty rare. There's another kind of tropical disturbance that they're watching, but it's in the way eastern Atlantic. So we won't know about that for you know at least several more days. But hurricanes like the one we just saw in Florida, Adira, those have tend to have a tendency to have more of an impact on demand than they do supply. Unless there's a, a hurricane heading towards a Gulf Coast refining complex, chances are it's going to have more of an impact on, uh, on demand than it is supply. But with that being said, uh, the retail gasoline price today is at 381.8. That's according to AAA. Um, the highest Labor Day cost was in 2012 at 382.65. So we may get close to a new Labor Day record uh, this, this, this Monday. Um, against last year, prices are down by about a, a, a penny. Not that much, not that much difference between late August of 2022 and 2023. And in fact, there's 24 states that are now priced above where they were last year. Uh, some of them pretty significantly, Washington being one, Arizona being another, and Georgia. Uh, they're all more than 20 cents above last year's levels. And in the case of Arizona and Washington, uh, it's, it's almost 40 cents. Uh, the Georgia one's a bit interesting because last year Georgia had a tax holiday. So that's probably why Georgia is so far above where it was at this time last year. But unless a storm threatens those Gulf Coast refineries, we're probably going to start trending a little bit lower. Uh, this weekend represents the end of the summer driving season. Kids are back in school. Summer vacations are essentially over. Uh, and demand tends to, tends to trickle off a little bit. And also the formulation for gasoline changes. It's a little bit easier to make, a little bit cheaper to make. Uh, but refinery issues have been really the, the the issue this summer, and that's why prices have kind of gone up over the last several weeks. You know, I like to compare it to uh, think about a major league pitcher. You could throw 100 pitches, but it's a lot easier to throw those pitches when it's 80 degrees versus 100 degrees. And the sig significant amount of 100 degree days that we've seen in places like Texas, it makes it hard for these refineries to operate. So sometimes they'll have to reduce runs. Uh, to, to compensate for some of that really high temperature. And one of the th factors that has kept really gasoline prices from really kind of kind of going nuts to the upside here in recent weeks is ethanol has been cheap. And that is the perfect lead in for us talking about biofuels. Um, you know, ethanol is a biofuel. It's actually, um, it's been around for years and years and years. In fact, the uh, first Ford Model T's in 1908 were, could run on ethanol, on, on pure ethanol. But that being said, I mean, drivers, we've, we've been using ethanol at least 10% for, for years. Um, and it, it's, it's, it's a long running way the government regulations are being used to uh, cut greenhouse gases from fuel. And also it's, it increases 
the volume of gasoline with a cheaper component. So, but we have the renewable fuel standard. Jordan, why don't you just kind of talk us through a little bit uh, about the about the renewable fuel standard, where it stands? Give us a little little history there. Sure, sure. So they um, brought the, re the renewable fuel standard, the RFS, into play in uh, 2005. It was signed into law by George W. Bush. Um, they extended it, expanded it in 2007. And um, the programs had a lot of ups and downs uh, over the 15 some odd years that um, it's been in place. Um, basically, in a nutshell, it mandates a certain amount of volume of biofuels to be blended into our transportation fuel supply in the U.S. It um, requires obligated refiners and importers, that is, uh, the people who bring, uh, who either produce gasoline and diesel or import gasoline and diesel, you're required to, uh, by the RFS, to um, blend or at least prove that you've blended um, so a certain amount of uh, ethanol, biodiesel, um, renewable diesel is a new one that's really come on strong, and other uh, biofuels. And um, it's, like I said, it's had its ups and downs, but uh, there's been a lot of court battles, um, but it's found some stability here the last uh, year or two. Um, things have calmed down a little bit. Right. And the RFS, as we kind of originally know it from 2005, did it sunset yet or is it right yeah yeah so, coming up but that doesn't mean it's yeah. going away yeah no that's an interesting part of the program so when they when when they signed when they wrote this into law congress came up with escalating volumes of statutory um mandatory volumes mm -hmm. um from 2007 all the way through 2022 and what happened at the end of 2022 basically epa just takes on the burden um the responsibility of um, coming up with their own volumes. Um, in some ways, it's it's been worked better for the program because um, basically you're not uh, having to blend X amount of volumes that, you know, senators 15 years ago came up with. Um, some A lot of those statutory volumes were way off of what actually, you know, uh, came to fruition. But um, EPA's got a pretty good handle on it. It's just their job to try and, um, you know, find a good middle ground and not anger the refiners on this side or the corn lobby on this side is it's, it's always kind of a um, tug of war with the with the RFS between big corn and big oil yeah no it's it's certainly a, a, a walking a, walking the tightrope there um and one of the more recent events uh that's you know I guess part of the RFS is that the Biden EPA has uh you know kind of denied any small refinery exemptions that are mm -hmm. that are out there. You know, what's the impact? Uh, is that a sign that the RFS is becoming actually a little bit more strict? Sure. Yeah, absolutely. So under the uh, Trump administration, um, there was a, a ruling came down from the Supreme Court that basically said the Obama administration had been too strict on refiners, had been um, holding those small refiners, uh, which makes up about 10 percent of the total RFS volume. It's a, it's a small amount, but 10 percent can really swing um things you know one way or the other but um basically obama was uh the obama administration was saying no to too many uh small refineries who were trying to get an exemption waiver out of this program and saying you know we're so small we can't compete with the bigger refineries if we have to you know pay for compliance from this program so obama administration was pretty strict the trump administration came in and uh they trump's first epa administrator was a guy named scott pruitt 
who was infamous for suing the EPA. Um, he had pending lawsuits against the EPA when he became the head of it. So um, he was obviously much more refiner friendly. Um, the Trump administration get, handed out a lot of exemptions, you know, uh, in those years. And then, of course, it went back to court. And again, the court said, OK, that's too much. <laughs> it's, it's almost like been a Goldilocks, uh, like not enough waivers, not, a, you know, too many waivers. Um, but now the Biden administration has come on and said, um, I think they've canceled out all but two, denied all but two um, waivers. I think those are maybe still held up in court or some some other issue going on with those. But virtually all um, waivers have been swept off the board. Yeah, no, it's it's not a day that ends in why if the APA is not getting sued, everyone sued. I think I've even sued the EPA at some point. But that, that being said, you know, one thing um, you know, just want to talk about. Uh, some of the impacts of the, of these programs, you know, the RFS brought us more ethanol into gasoline. It's also helped create, you know, the rise of renewable diesel and sustainable aviation fuel, uh, which are just crazes right now. Um, are there any programs out there, government-led, that have helped kind of usher these other renewable fuels into in, into the uh, in, into the mainstream fuel? Yeah, yeah, no, great, great question. Um, so the RFS has uh, these little uh, compliance instruments called RINs, Renewable Identification Number Credits. So that's what the refiner uses to prove compliance. And that's the the price of the RIN. It's been a really volatile market since the, the beginning. For years, they were, you know, pennies and people barely thought of them. Then they went up to $2 um, a couple summers ago. Um, now they're around $1.40. Um, and that does have an impact at the pump. Uh, currently, what a refiner pays for a typical gallon of um, gasoline in compliance is about 18 cents. So like when you fill up, you're, you're basically uh, 18 cents of what you're paying at the pump per gallon is um, essentially buying RINs for the uh, refiners and covering this program. But um, there have been other programs that have really... Um, propelled biofuels forward, I guess you could say. Mm -hmm. uh, California Low Carbon Fuel Standard uh, started just a few years after the RFS, I want to say 2010 or 2012. Um, it also faced a lot of court challenges in the early years. But essentially, the difference between the Low Carbon Fuel Standard, the LCFS, and the RFS is, again, the RFS is uh, mandating certain volumes and certain percentage of uh, blends of biofuels while the LCFS um, basically puts a, a, a score, a carbon intensity score on every fuel, gasoline, diesel, whatever we use to you know, move from point A to point B in the transportation fuel supply. And they set a target. So each year that gets a little more stringent. Um, it, your, your average score needs to get better and better each year. And that program has really um, been a game changer. I hate to use that cliche. Uh, <laughs> been a game changer for uh, fuels like renewable diesel, sustainable aviation fuel, um, because it really uh, incentivizes uh, low carbon fuels, uh, just like it's, you know, just like it's titled. Um, so we could we could talk a little bit about um, what that what that's been like, that that kind of revolution over the past five years or so with renewable diesel. That's right. yeah, yeah, no, and, and I just want to remind everyone it's uh, it's about twelve ten, so the live questions are open right now. So feel free to uh, type in any questions you might have for Jordan or myself. Uh, one other thing that you may not know is that 
uh, at Opus, Jordan's probably the only person who's taller than me. So um, you mentioned California and their LCFS program. What other states have, have an LCFS kind of program and are more states looking to, you know, build their own program? Yeah, absolutely. So um, Oregon followed California's footsteps, I want to say three or four years after California. Um, they have their own program, the Clean Fuels program. Um, then Washington came along and started their program at the beginning of this year, um, the Washington Clean Fuel Standard. Um, and then we've had a lot of other states that have come very close. Uh, Minnesota's taken a hard look at it. New Mexico came within a few votes. Um, Colorado's looking at it. A couple states on the East Coast. Um, so it's it's been a very successful program. Um, Canada just launched a nationwide uh, program at, uh, earlier this year that kind of is modeled after California's LCFS um, because it's really incentivized uh, the, the production and, and use of low carbon fuels uh, because like the RFS, they give credits um, for the, the low carbon fuels, the better your carbon intensity score is, the, the more you're improving from gasoline and diesel's uh, carbon intensity score, the more you're incentivized. So that's where renewable diesel has been kind of a magic fuel um, because it's you can blend it up to 100%. You can drive an old, you know, 1957 pickup truck that runs on diesel on 100% renewable diesel. It's chemically identical to um, diesel, which is different from biodiesel. Biodiesel kind of had its uh, blending um, constraints, I, I think is the word there. Um, mm -hmm. Whereas renewable diesel being chemically identical um, can be blended up to 100%. And everyone has jumped on the renewable diesel bandwagon, including refiners who, who you know, spent decades opposing um, biofuels, um, they've kind of found a, a niche for themselves um, mm -hmm. to also produce um, renewable diesel. Some have even switched from producing traditional diesel to uh, to renewable diesel. Right, right. Yeah, I was gonna just going to make that point. And, you know, one thing, uh, as we frame this conversation, I do want you to keep in mind that uh, these renewable fuels, to produce them, it costs a lot. So you kind of need these government subsidies like the LCFS, like the RINs program to prove compliance and everything. And, you know, in the case of Washington and their their newly launched program, that's getting a lot of the blame for retail gasoline prices that are almost 40 cents above where they were at this time last year. So um wanted to, you know, just kind of put that point out there, but also, okay, we're talking about, you know, renewable fuels. What's crude oil is obviously not the feedstock. What is the feedstock that, you know, the, the producers are using? Yeah, renewable diesel has had a has has had a wide blend, a uh, wide array of different feedstocks. Uh, you've seen a lot of um, vegetable oils, such I mean not vegetable oils, um, soybean oil, corn oil, um, used cooking oil has been a big one. Um, so you you take like a, a restaurant fast food chain like McDonald's. I don't know if you've seen in the back they have the you know storage for their their used cooking oil that they have to dispose of. Um, five or 10 years ago, they were having to pay someone to come pick it up. Mm -hmm. And now all of a sudden those people are paying, you know, the restaurants to, to come pick it up and use it because it's um, when you use a waste oil, like use cooking oil, you get a very low carbon intensity right. score. You get way more, you know, bang for your buck um, on production. So um, there's, that's been a kind of driving factor. You, you want to use the, 
you know, most envir environmentally friendly um, feedstock. And um, there's a lot of different ones. And of course, you know, the kind of the, the ag uh, industry wants it to be, you know, the soybean oils and the right. corn oils, they want their product to be used. Um, there's also, you know, animal fats, a lot of uh, renewable diesel has been made from um, beef and uh, pork, um, chicken. Yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah, exactly. So um, it's it's been interesting. There hasn't really been a one um, common feedstock and it'll probably remain that way. Um, and interestingly, one other note, we were just at a um, sustainable aviation fuel conference earlier this week in Minneapolis and uh, the ethanol industry is really pushing for their fuel to be used as a feedstock because you can make sustainable aviation fuel out of ethanol. So that's uh, another one to keep keep an eye on, you know, the next five to 10 years. I think right. there's going to be a big push for that as well. But as far as feedstocks are concerned, used cooking oil is pretty much the holy grail. Mm -hmm. um, and from what I understand, you know, you mentioned fast food restaurants and everything. And besides people trying to steal the stuff from them, uh, and correct me if I'm wrong, but it's a company like Darling Ingredients has pretty much all the used cooking out there, used cooking oil out there uh, kind of locked up on a contract. Um, yeah, that's what it seems like. You know, we, we used to hear jokes at our at our uh, conferences like, OK, well, with if you make renewable diesel out of soybean oil, your score is way up here. You're not getting as much you know, money from the credits. But if you make it out of used cooking oil, it's way down here. You're making way more money. So um, can you just take a huge vat of, uh, you know, <laughs> soybean oil and drop one potato in there and say, OK, now it's cooking oil. <laughs> I think at the end of the day, we just need to eat more French fries and, and get <laughs> used cooking oil out there. So, um, but yeah, no, the used cooking oil, from what I understand, is, is the holy grail as far as, far as feedstocks are concerned. Mm -hmm. um, so we talked about renewable diesel. And the interesting thing about renewable diesel, you know, it's really displaced about 40 to 50 percent of the traditional fossil fuel based diesel use in California. So it's certainly finding a home there. And those credits make it, you know, make it palatable and that's that's mm -hmm. why it's it's being drawn mostly to california but mm -hmm. i want to turn a little bit to, to sustainable aviation fuel so right now it's really just a voluntary voluntary program um and the interesting thing and and you could probably get into this a little bit there's a difference in in the credit price um so if i'm producing i think the sustainable aviation fuel credit is higher priced than the mm -hmm. renewable diesel credit so if i'm a producer I'm just going to make all the SAF I can, uh, you know, because I just get a higher credit. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it needs to, it definitely needs to be incentivized. It's um, running, I think, anywhere from 75 cents to a dollar 25 or $1.50 above renewable diesel. So uh -huh. you got to be incentivized. Uh, you, the money has to be there. Um, but there's just not a ton of production right now. I think what I heard at that conference was that we've only made about 12 million gallons of it through July. Um, so, I mean, this is, you know, tiny drop in the bucket in terms of the broader, um, you know, jet fuel demand. So it's got a long way to go. Um, there's a lot of projects that have, you know, that they're looking at. Um, and another issue with sustainable aviation fuel is that the there's a lot of money that's needed to, to build these, you know, facilities and banks haven't really seen it proven yet. So they've struggled to, you know, get real long-term, um, you know, financial backing from the 
the bigger banks um, to, to do these huge projects. But um, there's a lot of really interesting things in the works right now. Um, um, but, it, you know, we should see a lot more production, a lot more demand, um, again, five to 10 years from now. So long runway, pardon the bad pun there. So, <laughs> but, um, you know, there's, there's something that also incentivizes, you know, producers and, and blenders called the blenders tax credit. And every couple of years, you know, this is the year the blenders tax credit's going to go away, but Congress last second saves it and it gets retroactive. So I'm sure that's a big boost to, to companies, you know, that, that produce bottom line. Um, but it's changing from a, a blender's credit to a producer's credit. Um, yeah, it's, know, I, I would think most of the blenders are the producers. So is it just the change in nomenclature or is it, or is it more than that? Well, I think originally, um, you know, if you're a producer, you, you sell it down the road to wherever it's going to be blended. And that blender, whoever the, the middleman is, gets the uh, credit typically. Or maybe there's a split between the, the producer that made it and the, and the blender. But um, yeah, it's switching over to a producer credit. And they're also changing the way it's um, incentivized. So it, it will look at your um, carbon intensity score, your um, greenhouse gas reductions. Um, mm -hmm. So the better your fuel is for the environment, the the more you'll be incentivized with, with those tax credits. Um, so it's a little more like the LCFS um, with the new uh, with the new program that's coming in. Uh, I think next year or or twenty twenty five, I believe. Okay. Okay. So we can put you on the spot here. So I remember when the RFS first came out fifteen years ago. The big debate was this is food versus fuel. Um, turned out to, to to not be an issue, but with with more renewable fuels coming coming into play, do we see you know food versus fuel 2.0? Yeah, I mean, um, like you said, you know the the holy grail is used cooking oil so i don't think we're going to be competing for uh the traditional like food markets as much this round um uh, with renewable diesel and sustainable aviation fuel they're looking for you know other feedstocks they're trying to avoid using the you know corn soybean um so i don't think it will be as much competition as there was 15 years ago when um you know a lot of ethanol production was coming online um, but definitely something to think about. Um, yeah. you, you never know if some big drought could hit or, or, you know, something, some global, you know, catastrophe could, uh, could definitely shift that dynamic overnight. Right. Right. So, and again, I think, you know, farmers have, have to come down to a little choice, like, okay, I have, you know, a hundred acres and I'm, you know, farms obviously are, are much more than that. I'm just trying to simplify it, but you know, do I do 50% corn, 50% soybeans? Do I go 70, 30, 60, 40? So I think the farmers have a, have a lot to weigh as, as well in, in, in the whole grand scheme of things. So um, before we, we jump on to the, you know, some of the live questions that we've gotten here, and we've gotten quite a few guys, and thank you. Um, what other emerging fuels and hot topics should we be on the lookout for in, in the biofuel space? Yeah. Oh, that's a great question. Um, I, I hate to keep banging on the renewable diesels sustainably mm -hmm. and fuel, but it's, it's just uh, so hot right now. Like what was that Will Ferrell uh, line? That's Zoolander. I think those are some very hot topics right now. Um, yes. Renewable diesel is going to pretty much, it's already 
tripled, I think, from two years ago, the production. And I think it's supposed to double again in the next two years. So a lot of capacity coming online. Um, the build out of renewable natural gas has been really interesting to watch. Um, so there's a there's a whole lot of new projects online um, making uh, renewable natural gas. A lot of it is um, from dairy digesters. So they're taking like cow farts, basically. Um, yep, yep into uh, usable uh, fuel. There's not a ton of um, capacity for that, you know, in the, in the vehicle space. So it's it's a very small uh, component, but an interesting story nonetheless. Um, but, you know, one other thing, obviously the onslaught of uh, EVs, the more we electrify um, our vehicles on the road, including heavy duty, um, that's where it, it's really interesting. Um, if Tesla or some, you know, uh, auto manufacturer finds a way to make really successful batteries for the heavy duty fleet. It, from what I hear, it's a very long ways away, but um, you could see all this new renewable diesel that's coming online right now, um, start to shift over to sustainable aviation fuel, maybe 10 or 20 years down the line. If, uh, if, you know, we start to electrify more. So these are, you know, hot topics. Oh, one other thing, let me add, uh, there's, there's a lot of focus on uh, carbon capture and sequestration. Um, that's a fantastic way for biofuels producers to make their product even uh, more environmentally friendly. And I think a lot of refiners are looking at it as well. But you need the, the carbon pipelines um, to be able to build that out. And there is a lot of, uh, that's a very hot topic right now in the Midwest because there's a lot of pushback um, on building those pipelines through the yeah. cornfields and whatnot. Um, so uh, it's a very interesting thing to, to keep an eye on over the next uh, few months. Cool, yeah, so now we'll, we'll get to some of the live, live questions. And uh, again, we, we did talk a little bit about this, but we talked about it more in the near term. So this is from Patrick. What impact will feedstock availability have on planned uh, renewable diesel SAF capacity additions over the mid 2020s? So we're kind of forecasting out a, a little bit out there. Um, feedstock availability. Talk to me, brother. Yeah. Yeah. So, you know, a lot of these uh, refiners who built this new renewable diesel capacity um, built it with the economics in mind of uh, running it on soybean oil. Um, it's readily available. There's a lot of it around. Um, but the problem is, you're, again, your CI score, your carbon intensity score is not great. So, um, what has happened as all of these refiners have jumped on the bandwagon of producing renewable diesel, it's flooded the California market. Um, like you mentioned, 50%. Um, that was a big deal in Q1 of this year for the first time ever. Um, renewable diesel slash biodiesel biofuels made up more of the diesel pool than traditional diesel did in California. Um, that, that happened years before anyone expected it to. And that's because so much uh, new capacity has come online. Um, the problem is when there's when the market is flooded with it, though, the credit price has come down a lot. It used to be 200 bucks. Now it's like $80. Right. So um, those refiners are getting a lot less bang for their buck. They're having to look elsewhere. Soybean oil is, you know, not um as profitable on the margins as you know, something like a used cooking oil so yeah, um, i think soybean oil right now is probably the equivalent of about five dollars a gallon mm -hmm. okay uh, yeah so yeah, I mean, not cheap yeah yeah you're gonna have to um look elsewhere uh but 
everyone, you know, thinks they have the answer, but, mm-hmm. uh, you know, it could be something else, you know, entirely that we're not even thinking about right we now. We don't even know about yet. Yeah. Yeah. No, yeah. It's, you know, it's kind of a longer term forecast. Mm-hmm. So, um, this one's from, from Taylor. What is the, the cost difference to the retailers between regular diesel and, and, and biodiesel on average? And we'll throw renewable diesel as well. I, I think maybe, you know, kind of rephrasing this a little bit is like, you know, how much do these fuels cost on, you know, on a wholesale basis compared to traditional fossil fuel based diesel? Mm-hmm. Yeah, it, it's really interesting. Um, we've heard renewable diesel uh, trading at a discount actually to uh, carb diesel at times. But of course, that's, you know, a discount. Um, but then once you add all the other various components of, you know, the RIN credits, the LCFS mm-hmm. credits, you add all those other things. If you add it all up, it comes out to like six or seven dollars a gallon, mm-hmm. um, which is obviously way, you know, more than the um, traditional uh, traditional diesel. So um, they really do hinge on those on those credits to mm-hmm. be healthy and uh it needs, it's very policy driven, you know. Yeah, um, yeah, yeah. Makes sense. And I guess that's why you're probably not going to see some of these subsidies and givebacks going away. Mm-hmm. I don't know, you know, at one point, you know, and again, this is just a, a statement, it's not really a question, but at what point, just thinking out loud, do these, you know, a lot of these biofuels get to get to stand on their own and, and not need, you know, credits to compete with, with, with traditional fossil fuel? Uh, you know, when you're talking about, uh, the price of renewable diesel being double traditional fossil fuel diesel. I mean, that cost curve will probably come in at some point, but I mean, you know, I may be a fossil fuel by then. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So, I mean, the, yeah, there's a lot of, a lot of shifting dynamics around it. Um, the, the economics make sense until they don't, you know, um, sure. we've seen it happen with the RFS and the LCFS. If the, the overarching, you know, government body is not um, putting out a program that's stringent enough. Then the the price of the credits, you know, tumbles, and um, these fuels don't make sense all of a sudden. Um, so it's it's uh, it's interesting, and also you know, an interesting dynamic too. We've seen the biofuels guys and the refiners, uh, you know, shaking hands a lot more often because they see the the writings on the wall with um, EVs coming, and they yeah. they realize they need to kind of work together a little better um, than they than they have in the past. So that's that's been fun to watch too. Yeah, and kind of kind of to that point, um, you've seen refiners in the retail gasoline space get more into truck stops and and having joint ventures with 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 retail chains in order to have that guaranteed outlet for their for their product. Because you know, truth be told, gasoline demand is most likely in a secular decline. If anything, it's plateauing. So, you know, just something to, to keep in mind there. So this is from Ivar's, and I hope I'm pronouncing that right. There's a lot of companies looking at producing SAF in the U.S. from used cooking oil, uh, Valero, which is doing it for renewable diesel, um, and for methanol, which you kind of touched on a little bit. Since ethanol is used mostly for gasoline right now and today, at what rate do you see ethanol transitioning from gasoline to SAF? Or will there be new ethanol production that that needs to be required? Are we going to need more ethanol plants? No, that's a great question. I mean, I, I think in in my mind, and it feels like what the industry is anticipating is um, as that gasoline demand comes off, ethanol demand will likely come off as well. Um, we don't see, you know, we might see more E15, which is instead of the mm-hmm. 
traditional, the most common E10 that we use. Um, you could see an incremental shift slightly higher, but there's almost definitely going to be a, you know, ethanol demand uh, telling off in the next uh, five to 10 years. Um, so I think they're trying to find a new home for their product and sustainable aviation fuel is a, is a good opportunity, a good answer, um, because it's uh, going to be a relatively cheap feedstock um, mm -hmm. for fuel that should be incentivized pretty handsomely. Um, there's, there's a lot more wiggle room on uh, jet fuel pricing, uh, especially when it's, you know, better for the environment than there is for your, you know, diesel uh, truck stop, you know, uh, prices. Yeah. So it's definitely, definitely something to think about too. Gotcha. And yeah, I think I saw this morning that uh, Poets restarting a, mm -hmm. uh, an idled ethanol plant in mm -hmm. Indiana, maybe that was idled since 2019. So mm -hmm. there's obviously the, the demand for the product right now. Mm -hmm. So, um, so this one's from Kristen. What is the estimated U.S. versus global market demand for SAF and biodiesel? Call it renewable diesel too, um, versus the estimated supply. And who are the primary SAF producers right now? For the uh, demand, don't don't get me lying. I, I don't know that one off the top of my head, but um, I do know that you know, like you said, it's voluntary right now. Um, there's been some people that have tried to push the California Air Resources Board to make it required. So basically, if you're using jet fuel in California, you're required to. Um, basically be better, make your carbon intensity score better. So um, that could come into play. Uh, but in terms of um, looking at who the primary SAF producers are, um, mm -hmm. like I said, it's it's been very few and far between, but there are a few companies that are um, really big on um, investing in it. The the big starters are the ones that have been most successful with renewable diesel. So they've got a big head start. Um, that's been like your Neste, um, the uh, the joint venture between Valero and Darling Ingredients is called Diamond Green Diesel. They've got a they've got plans for a lot of um, SAF production coming online in the next couple of years. Um, there's and there's some other uh, companies like Givo um, and and a few others that are Lanzajet um, has a has a plant in Georgia that's um, 10 million gallons per year. That's they said earlier this week that it'll uh, should be up and running by the end of the year. So that's oh, yeah. um, that's going to be the first uh, alcohol to jet, you know, using ethanol as a feedstock um, plant. So it's pretty exciting to see how that thing does. Um, could you know really see a lot more uh, people jumping on that bandwagon if it's if it's successful. Gotcha. Gotcha. So, okay, here's one from, from Lewis. Uh, how much of renewable fuels manufactured in the U.S. is exported exported, and how much is imported and where are those imports coming from? Yeah, that's a great question. And it's that one has sh it's shifted a lot over the years. Um, we've had some years where we export a ton of ethanol um, and export market has been pretty, pretty good. I, I want to say we produce something like uh, 16, 17 billion gallons per year, somewhere around there for ethanol. And we export like a billion of that. So one sixteenth essentially. Um, and we imp we've imported very little ethanol over the past few years, um, basically because it just makes the most sense in the United States. The United States makes the cheapest ethanol. Brazil, sometimes we, we import their, their ethanol into California because it's got a lower, lower carbon intensity score. Um, 
And biodiesel, uh, we import and export a pretty small amount. Um, and we import a ton of uh, renewable diesel from Net Day. That's, that's probably the, yeah. the biggest one, um, going mostly, almost all exclusively into California. And, you know, I guess a little bit of a point of clarification, that, that Brazilian ethanol that mostly goes to, to California, that's sugarcane based versus corn based, correct? Yeah. Yep. Okay. Yep. So a lower, does it have a low, it has a low, it must have a lower carbon intensity yep. score because if it's going to California. Yep. They, uh, they want every drop of low carbon fuel that, that is available on the planet. So yep. uh, <laughs> uh, let's see. Uh, do, 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 do. Um, there are many companies, and this is from Ed, there are many companies engaged in various stages of the development of the use of SAF and, and, and renewable diesel. Who, well, we kind of kind of got this, but who are the top couple names that catch your attention when reviewing the space? Who's who's leading the charge in terms of creativity uh, on the regulatory side, on the commercializing side? Um, a couple examples there, if you can think of any. Yeah, no, um, you know, kind of kind of mentioned a few of them a couple of moments ago, but um, there there has been some skepticism too, I should say, you know, uh, because staff is is been very unproven so far. Um, and I don't know if you remember with the renewable fuel standard, uh, basically the poster child of the renewable fuel standard was supposed to be cellulosic ethanol. And that was the, the plan was to produce pretty much all of our ethanol from um, waste uh, mm -hmm. from the crops like the corn cobs and stover and the, the parts that you just throw away or whatever. Mm -hmm. And that technology never really came to fruition. Mm -hmm. So um, I mean, some some people are a little concerned that maybe the same thing will happen with uh, sustainable aviation fuel. But um, I think, you know, there's a lot more smarter people trying to, um, trying to make this thing happen. And there's a lot of money at stake, too. Um, you know, there's a it's going to be uh, very handsomely incentivized uh, for years and years to come. So um, definitely a lot of a lot of interest around it. Mm -hmm. and, and I would also point out that there's there's plenty of. Uh traditional petroleum refiners that are, are getting into the space. Phillips 66 in San Francisco in the San Francisco Bay Area is transitioning one of their refineries to, to making renewable diesel and SAF. Mm -hmm. uh, Marathon at Martinez, mm -hmm. also in the in the San Francisco Bay Area. Uh, PDF just started up a, a, a renewable diesel plant in uh, at Chalmette. Um, mm -hmm. and, there, and there's more. Uh, yeah. The Vertex. Holly yeah. Frontier. Yeah, Shell a little bit. Yeah, there's a lot. So there's there's plenty of uh, there's plenty of incentive, like you said, and you know the, there's the knowledge base that's out there, and it's it, it's exciting times, and I think biofuels obviously have a uh, and certainly have a place at the table, and they've been proven it time and time again. So uh, unfortunately, that's all the time we have. So I want to thank you for for being here, Jordan. I really appreciate it, um, and thank you to our audience for tuning in. So Barons Live is off on Monday for for Labor Day. Uh, we can't wear white after that, after Labor Day. So just keep that in mind. But we will be back on Tuesday, September 5th. So please join us again. Uh, Barron's Associate Editor for Technology, Eric Savitz, will speak with Dan Niles, Founder and Senior Portfolio Manager of Satori Fund on the outlook of technology stocks. Uh, thanks for listening. Have a great long weekend. And we'll see you next time. The energy transition is a long and winding road, and it needs to be taken step by step. Learn more at SiemensEnergy.com.